Welcome to the Impact Gap Podcast. We are a graduate student-run, patient-centered podcast group based at the University of Toronto. Our mission is to provide a platform for patients and advocates to share important patient issues within our healthcare system. Today, our special guest and I will be discussing spinal cord injuries, or SCI. Spinal cord injuries occur when an accident or disease damages the spinal cord. This can result in a loss of sensation or muscle function depending on the injury. SCI is a complex and heterogeneous condition. That means that no two injuries are alike. The Praxis Spinal Cord Institute is an organization dedicated to supporting evidence-based decisions and to engaging with people with SCI in the research process. Our guest today is John Cherneski. To get started, would you be able to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. You know, I think it all would have to start with the actual event of my spinal cord injury. It happened in, uh, in July of 1993, as I said, when I was just a young man at 16 years of age. Um, spinal cord injury is often described as the most traumatic injury the human body can sustain and yet still continue to live. It affects every system in the body. Uh, it's not just the mobility impairment that is often most visible um, with paralysis to the lower limbs or upper limbs, but also the autonomic dysfunctions that come along with it. So simple things like managing your bowel and your bladder or your sexual function, your cardiovascular function, including your respiratory function, uh, temperature regulation. But you know, spinal cord injury is a lifelong condition. We currently do not have a cure for spinal cord injury. We're working very hard get towards that but uh, it's still some time off but it's that ongoing care that ongoing health maintenance that tends to be one of the biggest challenges for a lot of people living with spinal cord injury myself included and often interacting with the healthcare system can be challenging thanks for sharing john and you bring up a really good point here about the ongoing and lifelong interactions with healthcare here would you be able to share more about your thoughts on care navigation and accessibility for people with spinal cord injury? You know, for most people prior to their spinal cord injury, they, they had minimal interaction with the healthcare system. But now once you've had a spinal cord injury, you know, in the immediate aftermath, you're entirely reliant on the healthcare system simply to be alive. Um, and for the lifetime management of living with your spinal cord injury, you're going to need to interact with the healthcare systems a lot more frequently than your average person. And knowing who all the key players are, knowing the role that a physiatrist plays or a urologist or a spasticity specialist or a pain clinic, you know, a lot of people, it's a world that's very unfamiliar to them. And often there's uh, an onus put on the individual with spinal cord injury to be their own self-advocate even if they are completely unfamiliar with the healthcare system. And so I think a lot of people struggle to navigate that healthcare system. And even if they are able to navigate the, the system itself, oftentimes clinical settings are not welcoming to wheelchair users. You know, I think we can all uh, familiarize ourselves with having gone to visit our family doctor and they have uh, an exam bed in the room 
How often have you seen one of those that is height adjustable? I can say only a handful of times in my life. Usually they're about four or five feet off the ground, which if you're a wheelchair user is really not ideal. So the simple things like getting uh, assessed by your family doctor or even getting into your family doctor's office, the physical barriers to accessing care on top of the challenges in navigating the system can really be a, a huge and significant challenge for a lot of people with spinal cord injuries. So it would be um, good to see if we can start to alleviate and mitigate some of those challenges by increasing the physical accessibility and providing an easier path to navigate the healthcare system for people that are living with chronic complex health conditions like spinal cord injury. I think you called attention to several key issues here, like being a self-advocate for yourself when you're navigating through the system and physical accessibility. Zeroing in on care navigation a little more, would you be able to share a specific challenge that people with spinal cord injuries face in terms of navigating the healthcare system? Um, you know, you think when, when do most people seek medical care? That's when their, their health is, you know, um, weakened or, or lessened. And so you would think that of all places to make physical barriers as limited as, as, as little as possible, doctor's offices or, or specialist clinics would be at the top of the list, but sadly that's not always the case. A friend of mine uh, uh, was living in a sort of a, a rural setting and had a, a pressure injury. For those that are, are not familiar with what a pressure injury is, it's a, an unhealing wound. And the, the three things that you always consider when you think about the risk factors for pressure injury are number one, circulation, number two, sensation, and number three, mobility. And all three of those things are often compromised in people with spinal cord injury. So when a pressure injury occurs in an individual with a spinal cord injury, that is an emergency situation. But unfortunately, not uh, all medical practitioners recognize that because spinal cord injury is a relatively rare condition and not everybody um, is, is well uh, educated and knowledgeable about spinal cord injury that works in the healthcare system. So this individual um, was dealing with a pressure injury and took all the right steps. Um, spoke with their family physician and was getting uh, support from the community nursing staff that was in that area. Um, and they, they did what they were taught to do. They, they managed this pressure injury as they would a wound in any other person. Unfortunately, they didn't have that knowledge about the high risk of individuals with spinal cord injury. And so after a period of months of trying to manage this wound in, in sort of the traditional way, it wasn't healing. In fact, it was getting worse um, to the point where this individual ended up needing to relocate to a, a larger urban center to seek more specialized care. And in the end, they had to come to Vancouver to the main city here to undergo uh, reconstructive surgery to try to close that wound. And in the end, you know, it was hugely traumatic for the individual. Um, it pretty much stole over a year, almost, almost a year and a half of their life. Um, and it cost the healthcare system hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, and this is just a simple example where that lack of awareness and that lack of access to specialized care in rural settings um, and perhaps um, not understanding 
the, the need to navigate the system in a, in a more appropriate way all led to a really you know, less than optimal health outcome for this individual. And so these are some of the challenges that, that people with spinal cord injury face every day. And, and you know, that's just in Canada where we have a really world-class medical system. When I talk to friends and colleagues around the world, um, often the situation is, is even more dire. This story really highlights how the lack of awareness and lack of access to specialized spinal cord injury care led to a very dangerous situation. Would you be able to talk a little more about social isolation in the context of individuals who have spinal cord injuries? It can be hugely, well, it is hugely traumatic to, to have a spinal cord injury. And your, your sense of self is often changed quite, quite dramatically. You know, uh, myself, for example, I, I led a very physically active life prior to my injury, running and jumping. And, you know, I played all sorts of sports and I was an active cyclist and just I did anything I could that was physically active. Um, and now more than half of my body doesn't function normally. My, my legs don't really work. I have some residual function in my legs, but I still use a wheelchair as my primary mode of transportation. Um, I broke my, my neck at the C7, which is the cervical vertebrae level. So I have impaired function in my hands and arms as well. Um, and so, you know, the idea of returning to some of those physical activities that I, I enjoyed was diminished. Not to say that I don't, I still uh, actively participate in, in a number of, uh, of sports um, that are, you know, specifically designed for, for people with mobility impairments like wheelchair rugby or wheelchair tennis or downhill skiing or adaptive hand cycling, but not everybody does that. Living with spinal cord injury is very, very expensive. Just to give our listeners a better understanding of this, would you be able to share general lifetime cost of care for Canadians living with spinal cord injuries? Um, you know, the, the, our, our current estimate of lifetime cost of care of somebody with a cervical spinal cord injury is over three and a half million Canadian dollars. And we're in the process right now of updating those figures because I think we recognize that they are actually significantly higher. Those, those numbers are from more than a decade ago. You know, and so those costs are not just the added healthcare costs, but for example, the wheelchair that I'm sitting in right now cost almost $20,000. And their expect, life expectancy is about five years. I'm lucky enough uh, through my employment with the Praxis Spinal Cord Institute to have extended medical benefits. Uh, and my insurer was generous enough to purchase this chair for me because my doctor and occupational therapist recommended that this was you know, needed for me and they agreed. But I'm lucky because I have full employment. Not everybody has full employment when they have a spinal cord injury. In fact, for persons with disability, unemployment figures are around 70%. You know, and so the way it works for, for persons with disabilities like spinal cord injury, you know, you kind of have a, a tiered system where those that were injured in, in an insurable incident, so maybe a motor vehicle crash or maybe that extended health benefits, um, or, or perhaps they, they were in a workplace accident, they tended to have the financial supports to acquire a lot of these equipment and things that they need. Um, if you have workplace compensation, they often uh, are quite good and, and proactive. They often practice preventative medicine where they're trying to address your needs before they become a problem. 
when it comes to ministry supports, they often wait until it becomes a problem and then provide the lowest cost solution to it. Um, and so those in themselves are challenges. But on top of that is that return to work. Because as soon as you return to gainful employment, you can lose those social supports or lose some of those workplace compensation benefits. Um, and so it creates a disincentive to people to return to work because if they do, they may lose that social benefit for the prescriptions and catheters and wheelchairs and care provision and all these sorts of things that they require. And so often people are hesitant to return to work because they're not sure if they can still work a full 40 hour work week or even put in 25 hours a week um, and to be able to acquire that um, extended health benefits from their employer. And so, yeah, it really does create, as I say, a disincentive to return to work, which can again lead to reduced psychosocial health outcomes. Um, there is one more question I want to backtrack to. You mentioned that the wheelchair is your primary mode of transportation. Pre-COVID, would you be able to share sort of how, how you get to work or any comments on like public transportation and how that intersects with mobility? Yeah. So when I say it's my primary mode of transportation, perhaps I misspoke. It's my primary mode of mobility. Nothing irks me more is when I hear somebody say that somebody is wheelchair bound. Um, I'm not wheelchair bound. I'm wheelchair liberated. Yeah, thank you for uh, sharing that and correcting it. Very interesting that you mentioned, you know, wheelchair bound, uh, wheelchair liberated. So I think it's really important that you're calling attention to being more mindful of language. Before we jump on, maybe I'll just touch on, on one other thing. Um, I often, I, I shrug a little, um, particularly when you're someplace like the shopping mall. And I'll see an elderly couple. Um, and you know, as we age, our mobility starts to decrease. And you can see them in these big shopping malls, and they're they're moving along at a, at a rather slow pace. And you can see that traveling those long distances on foot is is a bit of a challenge for them. Um, and then I'll go flying past with an effortless push of my wheelchair, and I almost get a, a sense of envy from them because. It's funny, I, I, you know, having spoken to some people that are, you know, a little older, you almost feel like there's this stigma attached to wheelchairs that a lot of older people will, will choose not to use a wheelchair because they feel it somehow invalidates their ability. And it's, it's, it's really kind of sad because uh, a really well built and designed wheelchair like the one I use really does ease your mobility significantly. But you know, one of the sort of future areas of mobility that we're looking at is exoskeleton technology. Um, so if you're not familiar with exoskeletons, it's sort of an advanced robotic that you would wear on your body to assist with movement, uh, in particular walking or upper extremity movement. Um, but I'm very much hopeful that, you know, as this technology advances and becomes more agile and more user-friendly and more functional for people, that we're gonna see more and more um, older populations embracing this because I don't think it will have the same stigma attached to it that perhaps they feel wheelchairs do. And also they're, they're so cool. So um, that's something, something to keep an eye on for the future. Have you had a chance to try an exoskeleton? I have, I've tried a few of them, yeah. Um, they're very cool um, and it's great to, to get upright and, and standing and stepping. 
But as I said, they, they still have some shortcomings. Um, they're not particularly agile. Um, they're not self-balancing. So as a, as a method of independent mobility right now, they're, they're not quite there yet. But uh, as I said, we're hopeful that some of these second generation exoskeletons like the one in the Praxis SEI uh, Accelerate commercialization program uh, might be able to fill that gap and create a new uh, mobility device for people with mobility impairments. Um, thanks for mentioning these exoskeletons. They're definitely something that could be really revolutionary and definitely looking forward to see what comes out of that. From your perspective, uh, would you be able to comment on uh, language in this particular context and how language matters? You know, a lot of uh, times you'll hear the term patient, patient partner, patient-centered care. For persons with spinal cord injury, they, the term patient doesn't really resonate very much. Um, I think we think of ourselves as patients when we're in that acute phase of injury or undergoing rehab or when we're seeking clinical care. But outside of the, that hospital setting or clinical setting, we're individuals, we're people. So, you know, the, the term we're using right now is consumer. Um, I think there's some thought towards leaning towards persons with lived experience of spinal cord injury, but that's a bit of a mouthful. So we'll, we'll see how that evolves. Um, so would you be able to tell us a little bit about the Praxis Challenge that you're involved with? Yeah. So this is a, an exciting challenge that, that we're partnering with the University of Toronto, University of Waterloo, the University of Calgary and Simon Fraser University on. Maybe I'll, I'll just go back a couple of steps here. So within my organization, um, we're, we're a bit unique. We fund spinal cord injury research, so we're a granting organization. But really our goal is to accelerate ideas to impact, to bring research out of the lab and get it into the clinic where it can impact positively people living with spinal cord injury. So we're really a knowledge translation organization. And so within that, we have a research team, we have a clinical team, we have our consumer team, and we also have a commercialization program. And, you know, I think when people first hear this idea of commercialization and research, they're, they're not really sure what we're talking about. What we're trying to do is get researchers out of the lab and into the boardroom. Too frequently, you know, researchers develop fantastic and novel um, treatments and therapies and devices, but the end result of that is a journal publication. It never really goes on to be widely adopted in clinical practice to positively impact people living with spinal cord injury. And this is where the ideation challenge comes in. The ideation challenge is even a little earlier. This, at this, for this challenge, you don't even need a prototype. All you need is an idea. That's why it's called the ideation challenge. So this challenge is open to anyone. You don't need to be a researcher. You don't need to be a student. You don't need to be uh, a startup or an innovator. Anybody who has an idea is welcome to pitch it to this ideation challenge. Um, and so really what we're hopeful that is at the end of this ideation challenge, we'll have some really fantastic new ideas that innovators have, have brought forward to a prototype design so that they're able to move to validating that prototype and hopefully towards a commercially viable product that can positively impact the lives of people living with spinal cord injuries. Um, I have one last major question for you, John. Uh, would you be able to tell us one important message that you'd like to share with our listeners? 
when we look at some of the most successful companies in the world, when we look at Apple, when we look at Tesla, you know, you look at the products that they develop and that make it to market. And you can tell the moment you look at them or the moment you touch them, how much involvement of end users went into the design of these products. But unfortunately, that's not often the case in health research. You know, um, I know a lot of researchers and they are brilliant, brilliant people. And, you know, the fact that they're dedicating their lives to help others cannot be commended enough. But too often they work in isolation. You know, they're not working with people that live with those health conditions. They're not working with clinicians who will adopt these new technologies or therapies that they're developing. Um, and I think that's a really a missed opportunity. And I think that's why so often the end result of so many research projects is a journal publication and not a real meaningful impact on the lives of people living with the health condition they're intending to help. So, you know, if I was to, to tell you my one important message, it's that, you know, practicing this model of integrated knowledge translation, where you think about who is going to be the recipient of that knowledge, who is going to take up that baton and move it through the next leg of its development. Think about who that is and then get them involved. Get them involved early, get them involved often. Work with them, solicit their feedback. You know, recognize that their experience is their expertise. Not all knowledge comes with a PhD. You know, and if you can meaningfully uh, engage with these individuals in a non-tokenistic way and really take on that knowledge and expertise that they have, you're gonna end up with greater results. Um, you know, it, it works in all aspects of research and in healthcare system delivery and, and outlay of new um, methodologies and technologies. So yeah, that, that I think would be my one key takeaway message. Thank you so much to our special guest for being a part of our conversation today. You can find more information about us on our website at impactgap.wordpress.com or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at impact underscore gap. If you have a story that you'd like to share and are interested in joining us as a guest, you can contact us at impactgap at gmail.com.